You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, my name is Demet Çanakçı. I am a program director at Toronto Centre. Thank you for joining us today. Today's session is not part of Toronto Centre's pandemic series of webinars. However, it is devoted to a very important technical topic with global implications for financial stability. With COVID-19 consuming our attention for the past few months, most of us almost forgot about the 2008 global financial crisis. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the G20 endorsed a number of pivotal reforms intended to make the financial system safer. A core element of these reforms are policies that are addressing the too-big-to-fail reforms in order to reduce moral hazard and systemic risk. The Financial Stability Board has been evaluating these reforms and as a result, the FSP published a report for consultation on 28th of June. Today, we are delighted to host Claudia Buch to talk about the main findings of the working group and issues to be addressed in the consultation report. You have received her bio, so I will just very briefly introduce her. Claudia is Vice President of Deutsche Bundesbank and the Chair of the Evaluation of Too Big to Fail Reforms Working Group. She also has a distinguished academic career. Before I pass this over to Claudia, I want to thank our funders. Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish SIDA, International Monetary Fund, Jersey Overseas Aid and Comic Relief, and USAID, without whom we couldn't achieve our global mission. We have a great discussion ahead of us and look forward to your questions. Please use the Q&A tab to submit your questions during Claudia's presentation. It is now my pleasure to hand over the session to Claudia for her presentation. Enjoy the session. Over to you, Claudia. Thank you very much, Demet. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, although I'm not sure what here means. We're all in different locations. It seems that to Toronto at this time of the year would be a very um, nice location to, to visit, but I'm in Frankfurt and I'm very happy to be here and also the virtual meeting format makes it possible for all of us to meet. And I noticed that um, listeners um, are um, um, across the globe, so I'm very happy also to get your feedback um, on what I'm going to talk about, which is the um, evaluation of too big to fail reforms. Okay, so um, what I would like to talk about today is the um, evaluation of uh, too big to fail reforms. And I think you're all aware of what it means. What is the too big to fail problem? It's, it's basically about the issue that banks can become so large, so complex, so interconnected that their failure would cause harm to the financial system and to the economy. And so because this problem exists, um, a lot of reforms have been implemented, like Demet said, over the past 10 years 
to reduce the, the cost and the probability of financial crisis. So there's, we have higher capital requirements for banks as a whole, and in particular for the larger banks and for the more systemically important banks, enhanced supervision, comprehensive resolution regimes. And basically these two big to fail reforms are supposed to address the systemic risk and the moral hazard associated with these, with these banks. Before going into the details of what this evaluation has done, and I should say, um, I'm just speaking in, on, on, on behalf of a, of a whole team, a very dedicated team in the FSB, um, across the FSB countries that has done this evaluation. Um, so, and a lot of time and effort went into it starting um, early last year. So, and this is basically, this evaluation is part of a, of a big project of the FSB evaluating the post-crisis financial reform. So as you know, these reforms have been agreed, the, the, the large body of it in 2009, so right after the global financial crisis, then it took some time to actually implement, to design the reform. So many of the too big to fail reforms actually became effective in 2015, for instance, with additional loss absorbing um, capital. And then the FSB said, well, the G20 leaders said, well, we have to also find a way to look at the effects of this reform. So to actually have a framework of how we want to assess the, um, the, the, whether the reforms have reached their objectives and, and how can we, can we look at this. So there was a series of evaluations starting in um, 2017 on derivatives clearing, infrastructure finance, SME finance. So I, I'm sure also very relevant topics for people around this table here. Um, but what I want to talk about is, is the, the too big to fail evaluation, as I said, which started at the beginning of last year and the final report is due um, early next year. And now we're kind of in a very interesting phase because we have, we have the results. Um, I noticed that this webinar is actually on the pandemic. So I must say, hope I'm not disappointing anybody that um, our evaluation stopped prior to the pandemic. So we, um, we haven't taking the full effect of the pandemic into account, but we thought that we have interesting insights which are also relevant for this, for this phase. And now it's the time for everybody to give feedback and to tell us what we have done, where we could improve our work. Um, and that will, um, all that feedback um, um, during the consultation will um, also be part of the, um, of the final report that we'll submit early next year. So that's why it's interesting for us to, to get feedback from, from all of you and for, for, from all interested stakeholders. Um, but let me say a bit more how we are trying to tackle this issue that actually the objectives of the reforms, namely to reduce systemic risk, to reduce moral hazard, these are things we can't observe. So there's no indicator. We can't go out and say, let's look at a, an indicator of moral hazard. All this is very indirect. And this chart basically shows um, how we're thinking about the problem. And Let's start with the, with the left-hand side, the choices of banks. So obviously banks, bank managers, owners take a lot of choices and some of these choices are affecting systemic risk. So the probability that a bank um, uh, becomes distressed and then also the capital shortfall given that the bank is distressed. Um, and this then, in case that happens, in case the crisis happens or, or distress situation happens in the individual bank, governments have to choose. So they have to choose between bailout. So that was very often the route taken in the, um, uh, in the global financial crisis because there was no framework for dealing with, with larger systemically important distressed banks or resolution. And clearly what the reforms are trying is to tilt the balance towards 
um, not bail out, but bail in, um, choosing resolution options and, and managing um, distressed banks. So this choice of governments then in turn has implications for, for market perceptions of what we call implicit funding subsidies. So the more likely is a bailout, the more that the, the higher is the implicit funding subsidy um, that uh, systemic banks are enjoying. And then this is a mechanism that would be relevant at the national level um, and in basically all countries. But then the question is, of course, what are the effects on other countries, other markets? And that's a perspective that the FSB is taking. So what are the cross-border um, implications of all this? And this basically tells you how we've been looking at um, the too big to fail problem, how we've tried to assess the impact of the reforms, maybe to see whether we do see changes in what banks are doing, whether we do see changes in the risk of the financial system, whether governments now have more tools to deal with distressed banks and whether this is actually leading to changes in market perceptions. Before giving you the three main takeaways of the evaluation, let me also stress that usually you think about too big to fail as being about the globally systemically important banks. But as you see in this chart, and this is the um, basically the G20 countries, many countries have few or even none globally systemically important banks, but there are many, many domestic systemically important banks. And they're also part of this evaluation. I'll come back to that because we know less about these banks um, in, in an international context than we, than we know about the uh, the so-called GSIPs. Um, but just to be aware, this is not just about the, the GSIPs, um, but it's also about um, smaller banks, which is still very relevant at the national level. So what are the key findings? Um, there are three of them. So the first is that these indicators that I've talked about, about systemic risk and moral hazard, are really moving into the right direction. And it already tells you a bit the second finding, namely that effective to big to fail reforms actually bring net benefits to society. But we also find, of course, this sounds very positive. It sounds like we are there and nothing remains to be done, but this is actually not the case. So we also find that there are gaps that still need to be addressed. For example, improving the resolvability of financial institutions. We found a lot of information and data gaps. Um, I'll come back to that. So the first finding, these indicators of systemic risk and moral hazard. Um, why are we saying that they have improved? Um, well, the first is, um, and there's actually, it's a very um, easy to visualize graph. These are the, the capital ratios of globally systemically important banks, and they have increased. Um, so that's clearly beneficial. This is also has helped us, I think, um, tremendously in the, um, in the pandemic situation because there were buffers in the system that the banks could use to buffer uh, to buffer shocks in the in the system. So that's clearly um, a positive um, finding. And that actually in and of itself implies that profitability of the systemically important banks has fallen relative to that of other banks. And you very often hear the banks complain, maybe the owners of the banks complain that profitability has declined. But we are actually saying that this is positive from the point of view of society as a whole because higher capital means that return on equity declines. Um, the reforms have also incentivized the banks to take on lower risk. We have higher funding costs because of the internalization of this implicit funding subsidy. So all this leads to a decline in profitability, which will, may well be in, in line with the stronger resilience of the financial system, of the banking system. So all this is, is um, clearly positive. 
And um, the third finding here is that lending has not declined. So many people fear that, well, if you increase capital requirements in particular in the short run, that may mean that um, lending would decline. Um, we haven't found that. We actually ha also haven't found that there are any other significant changes in the balance sheet structure of, of the systemically important banks compared to other banks. So maybe our, our measurement is not, not fine enough. Um, maybe that, that hasn't actually um, happened. Um, but also we find that the complexity of global banks remains, um, remains quite, quite high. Um, in terms of choices of governments, um, so failure of large banks has become less likely, but should it happen, what can governments do or, or rather resolution authorities, what can they do? Clearly, um, implementation of resolution reforms has made progress. Um, so we've actually constructed a resolution reform index going through a lot of FSB documents, uh, national documentation. We've asked our members and what we came up with is a resolution reform index that you see here on the, on the left-hand side. And um, it basically gives you the legal implementation of resolution reforms um, following the FSB uh, key attributes for, for resolution systems. And you see that there's been a gradual improvement. So there's there's much better now, better systems now for the resolution and, and, and restructuring of um, distressed banks. So that's clearly positive news. Um, it's on the, on the legal side. So we have these institutions, we have the legal frameworks. And then of course the question is to what extent is it actually implemented? Are these reforms used? Is it credible? Um, I, I'll come to that in a second. What we also find is that um, uh, total loss absorbing capacity has increased and that's um, uh, usually uh, the, the, the acronym TLEC is important here. So uh, what TLEC basically is that on top of the capital that the banks have, the equity capital, um, there's a tier of um, um, debt that the banks have issued that can be bailed in um, in case of distress. And um, the GSIPs have to meet the final TLEC requirements by the end of 20. Um, 22, and most banks already meet these final TLEC requirements. That's certainly good news. It's, of course, also reflecting that for most of um, the time period we're looking at here, um, there's been a very benign market environment, so the issuance um, was, was relatively smooth um, during this, this period. So that's good news in terms of feasibility of resolution. Is this considered to be credible? That's obviously a key question here. Um, and what we do find is that, um, yes, implicit funding subsidies um, have declined. Um, so you can see this here. When you look at what we're doing here in this chart is we are comparing um, the funding costs of systemically important banks to those of other large non-bank um, institutions, corporates, um, to other non-bank financial institutions. And no matter which metric you use or which comparison group you use, you see that if you look at the post-reform period versus the, the period kind of in between, in between the crisis and prior to the implementation of the reforms, so the, the third um, part of this chart versus the, the middle part, then you see that these funding costs have, have, have fallen. So that's good news in the sense that implicit funding subsidies are lower now than they were prior to the reforms. But you also notice that in the crisis, in the pre-crisis period, um, we, we, we also had, um, or we are not necessarily be below the pre-crisis period, to put it this way. So there's a reform effect, but um, 
comparing it to longer um, time series, there's not um, a big change. And I don't want to go into much detail here, but uh, we also have a lot of indicators that market discipline has improved so that, that markets are um, linking these funding subsidies more than they did prior to the reforms to the actually underlying risk of the financial institutions. So all of this is um, actually also good news from the point of view of whether the reforms are working. Um, the second point, um, or the second key finding, um, the benefits to society. And there's obviously different ways of looking at the costs and benefits of these reforms. Um, there's kind of this private view, the private perspective. So what would an individual bank, an owner of the bank say? And obviously what I've just been talking about, the reduction in implicit funding cost subsidies, that actually means higher funding costs for the individual banks. So the banks may say, well, this is not um, our ideal world. We were better off in a situation with um, lower funding costs. But of course, we have to take the point of view of social costs and benefits. And what matters there is um, how likely is a bank to fail, um, how big is the, the, the potential loss um, to, the, to the taxpayer. So these are the social benefits you see here on the, on the right-hand side. But also from the social perspective, there, there, there might be costs. Um, so we might see a decline in lending. We might see if the, the banks pass through higher funding costs to their customers, we might see um, higher, higher borrowing costs. So we try to look at this in very different ways. And what we basically find is, um, and I make this very short, the social benefits are higher. So for the sake of time, I won't go into the details of how we look at this. Um, but this is actually positive news again from the point of view, is it beneficial or not? Um, there's a lot of detail on this in the, in the report. Let me just mention one aspect here. Um, clearly, um, lending hasn't declined. So we, haven't, we don't see that the ratio of credit to GDP has, has fallen. Um, what we do see is that there's been a shift in market share. So you can see this in this chart here. Um, so the, the systemically important banks, they have reduced their market shares, but there's other institutions that have come in. So that's the, um, that's the, the yellow line here on the, on the, in, in the left-hand panel. So there you see that, of course, market shares change only slowly over time. So you don't see big jumps in this time series. But if anything, then the GSIPs and DSIPs, they have done less lending and, the, um, and other financial institutions and other banks have, have come in. Um, so does it mean, as I said before, that we are there, that there's nothing that needs to be done and, and that we can just lay back and enjoy the benefits of the reforms? Well, that's not quite the message of this report. Um, so there are actually three main gaps that we uh, think still need to be addressed. So one is um, that there are still, even given what I've said about the, the improvement in resolution, resolution reforms, um, there are still obstacles to resolution that can be um, reduced further. So we have seen even in, in the period under investigation that there's been some state support for failing banks. Resolution of central counterparties, also a key part of the FSB reform agenda is still work in progress. And there's lots of, I, that, that we for now say details in, in terms of uh, re resolvability that, that we still need to work on and the FSB does do a lot of work. Information can be improved. So just to give one example, um, I've told you that we have more TLEX, so more bail-in capital in the banks now. 
we found it somewhat difficult to find out who are the holders of this of this uh, TLEC um, debt issuance. So, and that's of course important uh, for the resolution authorities to decide whether or not they want to use the bail-in um, option, um, and uh, in, in order to understand what are the implications for the markets. And we think that actually all stakeholders would benefit from closing such information gaps. And then monitoring can be enhanced. So we know that with every regulation, there's, there's, um, uh, uh, there's effects on other market participants. So risks have shifted from uh, banks to, um, to non-bank financials. Of course, we need to monitor this. Um, we found, found it relatively difficult to get consistent information on these DCIPs, the domestically systemically important banks across countries. Um, so there's also work that needs to continue here. Um, I'm sure people around this virtual table may have more ideas, um, have comments on the report, and you may also have comments on whether we actually do the, uh, do the, draw the, the, the right inferences about what we've observed here. And there's an um, opportunity to give feedback to the FSB. You see the email address um, at the bottom of this page um, until the end of September. So I hope that people have many other plans for the summer, but I hope that some find also time to, to look into this and give feedback on the, on the evaluation. Um, and let me stop here and uh, try to close the screen and I look forward to the dis dis discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claudia. That was very brief and excellent presentation. Thank you so much. So we have some questions that I would like to pose. And so first, I would like to start uh, the pre-submitted question because we received it a couple of days ago. Um, it's from, a, from uh, our uh, participant from Botswana. Um, for a small economy like Botswana, where all the operating banks are subsidiaries of international banks, is the principle of too big to fail appropriate? And it continues. It, in principle, isn't it important that supervisory authority should manage the exit, exit of any bank, regardless of the size, its size? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. And it made me wonder, or it made me think that I actually know very little about Botswana, not only about the banking system, but also about the country. So my apologies if I can't say anything specific about the country. But I think the, the question that you raise is really, um, it's very representative for a lot of countries where um, that may have a relatively small do domestic banking system where there's activity of some, some internationally active banks. And I would say that that's actually this, this whole issue of too big to fail is crucially important for, for countries um, like I try to portray Botswana without knowing the details in the following sense. So one is also domestically, there are banks that can be too big to fail for the individual country that have a high market share that can impose risks for the domestic financial system for the domestic um, taxpayer. So I think a lot of the, the issues that are part of the FSB attributes of how to, how to deal with failing banks can be, also, can be actually relevant for every country, even if from an international perspective, we would say, well, the banks in this country are, are not significant enough for the global financial system or there's not much cross-border activity. So I think it's useful for all countries to consider what does my local market structure look like and what are issues um, if, if a large player in this market um, fails or is distressed. So that's, that's, that's one part of the answer. The second part of the answer is that um, I think precisely because smaller 
emerging markets, um, um, countries that are less maybe at the focus of the FSB, um, precisely because there's global banks being active in these markets, it's very important that we have good resilience standards for the globally active banks because it might be very, I mean, if it might, the, the activity of an affiliate of a global systemically important bank in a, in a smaller country may not be very important from the point of view of that large bank, but it might be very important from the point of view of that, of that country. So that country wants to make sure that um, there's an international coordination, that the global banks that are active in emerging markets, that they're sufficiently resilient, that there's a mechanism for, for, for dealing with the, with the failure of these, of these banks. And we've actually seen um, many initiatives. Um, there was, for instance, in, um, in the global financial crisis, there was the Vienna initiative in, in Europe precisely in order to coordinate um, the activities of global banks so that they don't all of a sudden um, um, exit uh, smaller markets um, to the, to, with, with very high costs for these, for these economies. Um, so I hope that answers the question. There was also a second part of the question. If, if I understand that question co correctly, um, I think that, I mean, in some sense, banks are different from, from other companies, um, non-financial firms, um, in the sense that it not, it's not that easy to just um, um, send a bank into insolvency. So um, there's differences in terms of how to deal with a, with a distressed uh, bank in compared to a distressed um, non-financial. But at the same time, we, I mean, there needs to be a mechanism for exit like in any, any other market. And so the problem is, that for smaller banks, it's, of, it's sometimes easier to kind of merge them with other institutions. We've actually seen, I can just speak about my own country because that's what I know best. Um, we've seen um, that many, many very small banks have left the market, they've merged with other banks. So I think for the smaller banks that are less systemically relevant, we do have mechanisms of dealing with these banks and sometimes they're very institution specific. Um, but I think it's, it's also important to consider what's happening with the, with the larger banks and how to organize exit or the restructuring of larger banks that have lost business models. So in that sense, I think it's important that we have normal market mechanisms functioning also for, for banks, but how exactly um, this, this operates differs between smaller and, and, and larger banks. Let me stop here. Thank you very much, Claudia. Uh, so we have a couple of, uh, a lot of questions coming up. <laughs> so there's a, one general question again, I would like to start with that. What is your opinion on over-regulation and or the timing of implementation of regulations or policies and their impact on systemically important banks? Well, first of all, I think partly I've answered that, that question in saying that, um, we are now being globally in a very distressed situation, um, but not really first and foremost for the financial sector, but for the real economy. We're really seeing the benefit of having implemented the post-crisis reforms. So I think it's really important that we've done these reforms, that we have more, uh, that, that we have a higher resilience in the financial system. So I think it's really important going forward um, to, to maintain that momentum and not to, not to roll back reforms. So, I think that's the first part of the answer. At the, at the same time, of course, um, 
we need to be aware that whenever you increase capital re requirements, there's the risk of, of deleveraging because, of course, the banks need time to, to comply with the, with the new rules. So that's why I think the regulators have been very careful to give um, sufficient lead time to, to have um, um, a time period until full implementation is required. So we always have to balance these longer term benefits versus the potentially short term costs. But what we find here is that the, 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 the long term benefits are clearly there. And we also don't really find much evidence um, about this, this um, short term cost and short term um, uh, um, credit losses in, in, in credit, for, for example. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, you mentioned in your presentation about uh, this assessment being uh, pre-COVID-19. So there are some uh, related questions to that. Um, for example, very interesting report and excellent presentation. Many thanks. Uh, you mentioned the timing of the report pre-pandemic. Will your group try to take account of pandemic-related developments that could affect the too big to fail question? Mm -hmm. Also, there's a related question to that saying, uh, if too big to fail reforms successfully help authorities in prevent, preventing the bigger financial crisis due to you know, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, excellent question. So, so far in terms of the analytical work, we haven't taken the COVID period into account simply because, I mean, we would be also running after the fact a little bit and, and it's, it's, it's hard to kind of do the analytical work real time. So all of our analysis basically stops uh, Feb, Feb, February, but that was actually according to, to plan. So that was the, I mean, there's a process in the FSB and um, uh, depending on when is the, the deadline for the final report. So we didn't change anything actually in our, in our evaluation schedule, but um, we basically finished everything in Feb, February. So, the, the two key lessons that we take from this evaluation for the uh, for the crisis period are, are twofold. One I mentioned, namely the, the 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 better resilience that we have in the system, so the the, um, the banks um, are better able to to buffer the shock. And the second um, takeaway from the evaluation is that. Um, um, Nobody knows what's going to happen. We have an extreme, extreme degree of un uncertainty. Nobody knows what, how the real economy will evolve and, and uh, how effective all the measures that have been taken to protect the real economy will, will be. But um, should there be cases where authorities have to deal with distressed banks, they now have much more options of doing so. And we felt that this was also an important message um, to send, but the report doesn't take any stand here. So the report obviously can't say anything about optimal policies in certain circumstances in, in a particular country. So we're just saying there's higher resilience, there's more options now for the authorities. And that's basically where we, what the report can, can, can say. We do think though that um, coming back uh, back to work in, 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 in the fall and updating the, the, the studies there. There's some issues, maybe the implicit funding subsidies, that could be something where we do some updates um, prior to issuing the final report, but that hasn't been decided yet. Okay, thank you, Claudia. Um, another question. Um, your group focused on GSIPs, risk-based capital ratios, but did you also look at their leverage ratios? Hasn't the progress in reducing leverage being slower for the big banks versus other banks? Excellent question. And it was actually, there was a small line in one of my slides uh, where basically with, with, with that information, yeah, in terms of 
um, the levels of capital. So I talked about the changes um, in terms of the levels of capital. We do see that um, uh, there's, there, there's differences in the, in the leverage of GCIPs relative to, to, to other banks. Of course, there's many potential explanations for, for that. It may well reflect the risk of these banks that it's, that it's lower. So, um, uh, that, that's something that we still do see differences in the in the levels, but the, the trends are clear, and that's also basically that's part of the regulation that the, um, the systemically important banks have to have higher capital, and that the capital requirements have increased by by more. Um, I should say that um, we, in terms of for many reasons, but mostly in terms of data and, and also because many of the reforms that have been implemented have been implemented largely in parallel. So there was a package of reforms and we found it very difficult to get really very detailed information on how did the reforms impact individual banks at a specific point in time. So everything we are saying is really about the, the whole package of the reforms rather than about um, what is the impact of an increase in the GSIP buffer, as it's called, versus a change in the, in, the, in the leverage ratio. So in that sense, we can't really say anything about specific reforms. Also, because some of the reforms I mentioned as um, intensified supervision are very quali uh, qualitative. So it's hard to really measure intensified um, supervision. Um, um, so we, we can say something about pre-post reforms, are the GCIPs different from, and also the GCIPs different from, from, from other banks, but then it's, it's, it's hard to really drill down any, any deeper. Thank you very much. Uh, the following question is, uh, thank you, Claudia, nicely done. If in the final analysis, there appears to be um, a need to make policy changes to for example, capital rules, how would they, that work? Won't the industry try to use the consultative paper for lobbying purposes? How would the uh, FSB respond? I can speak for the FSB because that's a large body and um, uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a uh, Let's say in your opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. No, I mean, so when we're saying that there are gaps that need to be closed, we are not really talking about um, redoing or rethinking the overall approach to regulation. So I think there's a very clear message that what has been done in terms of the overall package, capital requirements, supervision, resolution reforms, that that's, that that's the right package. So there's nothing in the report saying, oh, this and that shouldn't have been done or should have been done differently. But at the same time, I mean, in particular, the resolution reform. So this is really changing the institutional infrastructure of how to deal with uh, with with failing banks so and we have relatively little short time period where we are learning how the new system is is working so you should see these gaps in that sense we are learning how the system is working and we're also learning where there are gaps but within the structure the overall structure of the the reforms that have been agreed upon so i don't think the report can be read as saying we should relax regulation or we should do different reg regulations um but yeah whatever i mean stakeholders may um, may view it differently but um, this is my expectation that it's not it's clearly not saying that we should roll back the reforms or do things entirely differently thank you uh so uh Thanks so much for your clear and precise presentation. Uh, could you tell us how Basel Committee and Financial Stability Board will work closely to include this new regulation in the 
causal principles. Yeah, so we've actually worked very closely with the with the uh, with the um, uh, Basel committee. So there was a was a subgroup doing doing related work on 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 DCIPs and on, on GCIPs and the and the buffers. So with with very there, there was very good co cooperation, and I should say that anything the FSB is doing here, um, like I said before, so there's no recommendations for for policy changes. So basically all the relevant bodies, all the relevant standard setters can now take the report, look at it, go through it and see whether there's any need for changes, but then those changes should be discussed um, in, the, in the Basel committee or in the respective bodies, it's not only the Basel committee. So very close co cooperation, but no, I mean, we, we wouldn't interfere with the responsibilities of other, other committees. And I think there's a very good division of labor here. Thank you. Uh, so there's another one. You make a very good point about supervision uh, and the more qualitative aspects of financial sector oversight. Sorry if you already mentioned this, but uh, has the report also looked at more intensive supervision and could there be any recommendations in, this, in that regard? Yeah, no, I haven't mentioned it um, in, in detail, just a little bit in, in, in passing. Um, so the short answer is um, no in the following sense that we did not have four specific countries or even four specific banks information on how supervision has changed. So you all know that there's new principles for intensified supervision and there's also been a discussion, this, this, this discussion the FSB has worked with many other bodies on, on how to improve this, how to make this um, operational, uh, but we didn't have any information. I think nobody has so, but whoever knows may correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. I don't think there's a really a good database. So all, I mean, I've not talked about the analytics a lot here, but um, what we need in order to, to really look at specific effects of reforms requires some quantification of, of the reforms um, like we've tried to do with the resolution reform index. And we don't have a similar database for, for improvements in supervision. And I think that would maybe also be stretching uh, quantitative analytical work a little bit too much. But of course, um, there's, there's a lot of other work ongoing and we're citing this and that, that qualitative work complements what we are doing, what we're doing here. But we are just looking at all this as a package, if you want. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, two questions from the same participant, Fiona, as uh, so I just combined those. Uh, considering that during the pandemic bailouts uh, are still needed, uh, is this contradict with the ultimate objective of too big to fail reforms? And also she's asking, do you consider this pandemic has revealed any weaknesses of too big to fail reforms that the report has not covered? It was pure pandemic, but you know, uh, what is your general view on, on that? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there are two, two questions. The first was about, um, we, we, we have seen even in the past years, or let's say since the global financial crisis, we have seen cases where um, public money, um, taxpayers' money has been used also to, to bail out or partially bail out financial institutions. And this is often held against the overall, let me call it philosophical approach of these resolution reforms that the FSB um, and, and many national authorities have, have followed. And I think that's, to some extent, it's not, well, I wouldn't say it's unfair, but it's, it's, it's really, uh, trying to 
to measure where we are against the perfect benchmark. And what you have to take into consideration is that um, these, these reforms have taken time to be implemented. So the final decisions on, for instance, TLEC were taken in 2015. So this is not a long time when, when you think about structural changes in the financial system. So some of these cases that we have seen were very rather specific idiosyncratic cases. There weren't actually too many of those cases after the implementation of the reform. So some already happened a bit earlier. Um, so I would hesitate to say, oh, because we have seen these isolated idiosyncratic cases, this is telling us that the whole reforms are not working. So what I find more plausible is to say, well, let's try to see how the reforms have been impacting all the GSIPs, all the DSIPs as a going concern because resolution reform, of course, is relevant once a bank is in distress, but is even more relevant when um, during the going concern in terms of setting the right incentives and making sure that banks don't engage in too much risk taking. And there, that, that's where we have much more evidence of across a broader range of countries. And that's where we've actually seen effects of the, of the reforms. And of course, we can learn, try and learn from individual cases, see to what extent they're representative for the, for the system um, as, a, as a whole. Um, the second part of the question, does the pandemic reveal any fault lines? Um, that's how I understood it. Um, so do we learn through the pandemic that there's things that we are missing and that we should have done? I, I would hesitate to, to make such a statement because we're still, I mean, we're still trying to understand the pandemic, the impact on the real economy. We're still trying to understand um, the effects of all the fiscal and monetary policy measures that have been taken in order to, to um, shield the real economy from the effects of the pan, pan, pandemic. So, um, and I actually also doubt that we can draw these lessons until early next year. So I think we, I mean, we, our plan is to finalize the report and see whether there's anything that we still need to look into. Maybe that's for the next, for the next project. <laughs> okay, uh, great. Uh, so another question, will it be possible to factor into your analysis the official sector measures taken by European Central Bank, Federal Reserve, Bank of England and others to provide stability? Haven't these measures also helped the GSIPs? Yeah, I mean, from an analytical point of view, clearly you can use basically all the um, all the, the analytical work that we have done. And I actually haven't explained much what we have done. So there's a lot of detail in the report. So basically, um, for those familiar with, with the literature, take, for example, the, the literature on implicit funding subsidies. So we basically look, first of all, what is available in the literature? Are there analytical approaches that are useful for us? And then we've replicated some of these studies because we found that a lot of evidence is not available for all the countries that we're interested in. And I think it would be straightforward from an analytical point of view to again take these studies and say, now let's not look at the impact of resolution reforms, but let's factor in other macroeconomic developments like the policies that um, um, people have mentioned, fiscal policies, monetary policies. So that can be done. We are very transparent about the um, analytical tools we're using. There's a long technical appendix. We're citing the studies. Is this something that we are planning to do within the time frame that we have? Um, I, I guess not. I haven't discussed with my team, but uh, there would be another big um, effort to, to really go, you know, really update all these studies, taking into consideration um, the effects of these other policies. So it's, it's nothing, it's also not in the, 
more technically speaking, it's not in the mandate of this of this group to look at all this, but the analytical approaches, I'm sure people find, would find good ways of actually integrating also these this other policy measures, yes. Thank you, Claudia. I see many uh, questions related to pandemic effects. So maybe it's another, uh, you know, webinar series uh, to to look at this uh, issue. Uh, there is a, a, another different question. Do you think there is any hope of creating a global regulatory derivatives trade repository available to all G20 Prudential Central Bank and Securities Authorities? That's a very specific question. Yeah. So is this about uh, the data trade repository data? So it's the, the, um, the derivatives traded on CCPs? Is that the, the idea? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's what, what is meant. Uh, not clear, but yeah. Yeah, so well, we, we, we have made a lot of effort also to, to get better data on trade repositories. And, and I, I know there's a lot of projects um, here in Europe and my colleagues here in the, in the Bundesbank are also working with those data in the statistical community. Um, there's also a lot of work on how, I know that individual countries have collected that data. So I think there's a lot of, learning, information sharing, how to use this trade repository data. Um, I must say that I'm not aware of initiatives to combine all this into one major database. So I, it seems a daunting task. <laughs> I, I don't know. So I think at, at the current juncture, we're, we're trying to, to use and learn how to use the, the, the information that we have available. And maybe there's a good, it's, it's, it's less about integrating everything into one database, but learning how to, how to use these databases, sharing experience. So maybe that's the more promising um, route to, to, to take. Thank you. I also see some questions in the chat box. So I'm going to pick one of those. Uh, is there as well progress towards a level playing field? Uh, in other words, are all countries addressing the too big to fail issue appropriately or which countries need to do more? Perhaps we cannot mention the names of the countries, but you know, um, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, there's, yeah, so I can't name countries. I mean, that's actually also not the purpose of this, of this, um, of this type of evaluation work. So as you know, the FSB is also doing peer reviews where they engage very closely with national authorities. So that's, I think, the, 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 the forum or the channel through which this, this kind of country-specific recommendations should be, um, should be um, con conveyed. So what we are doing here, so we, you can look at the data, let me take this resolution reform index, the information on the resolution reform index is in the appendix of the report. You can actually download from the FSB website you do see differences in implementation across countries and that's what the report is saying that these these um these uh, gaps um between full implementation and where the countries are right now these gaps should be should be closed so that's one of the things um that i mentioned earlier um we very well understand that it can be very difficult politically to implement these reforms so i wouldn't even for the countries where you see a gap I wouldn't see that they haven't um, made enough effort, but it's, uh, it, it may just be very difficult also nationally. But of course, we should all aim at following the same, uh, the, the, the same, same standard and the same principle. So this is what the FSB work is about. Um, does that necessarily mean all countries have to do exactly the same thing? So that's sometimes what you hear that we're, we're only living in a, in a um, 
well-regulated global financial system if everybody's doing the same? Well, not, not necessarily. So there might be very, there might be important country-specific features that you have to take into, into consideration when designing regulation. Um, so, and I think this is not where international bodies can, can say a lot, but it's, it's important that wherever cross-border effects are relevant, where there's externalities, that we then follow a same coordinated approach to make sure, coming back to the first question, to make sure that um, um, also smaller countries, emerging markets can rely on a, on, a, on a coordinated global system. I think that's very, that's very important. So coordination where it's needed and appropriate, but national approaches wherever um, there's, there's need for it. Thank you, Claudia. Um, so another question uh, for you. Uh, to what extent does the concept of too big to fail and emerging reforms apply to other financial institutions such as the insurance and capital market sector or group? Yeah, so not, not the focus of this evaluation, obviously. Um, there's, there's a lot of this discussion to what extent can other institutions also be too big to fail. Um, and um, I think there are two answers to this to this question. One is, of course, banks and insurance companies, to give that example, they have different business models. So when they do classification of banks as being systemically important, that would be different for insurance companies. So I think it's important to take these differences into consideration. Clearly, there's one set of institutions, um, the, the um, uh, CCPs, the central counterparties, that are to some extent systemically important by definition because we want derivatives to be traded on central platforms and not just over the counter where it's very difficult to, to supervise and to, and to monitor. So this is why the report is saying that in particular for these central counterparties, we also have to make progress with um, defining resolution systems, um, implementing resolution reforms. So that's one of the areas where we see need for, for action also. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I have a, a kind of follow-up question. What happens, what is the next steps in terms of, uh, you know, after, what happens after September 30th uh, when you receive all those, you know, uh, comments, feedback from the, uh, your audience? Okay, well then we, first of all, we come back from the summer break, we are all relaxed and, and uh, <laughs> eager to do more work. So we will look at all this. Uh, so first of all, we have, um, Maybe that's interesting. We also do a lot of outreach, like this type of event, but we also organize workshops with stakeholders. So we will have another workshop mm -hmm. with stakeholders also to get feedback from, from, from them having discussions of the report. So that will be in early September. Then we can all come back from our, from our summer holiday. We will look at this feedback. Actually, the feedback will also be posted on the FSB website. So whoever wants to see it, read it, can, can do so. We will go through it. We will see to what extent there's, there's feedback that we need to take into consideration when drafting the final report, to what extent there's additional sources we have to, we have to um, uh, cite. Um, and there, there might be very targeted updates of the analytical work, like I mentioned earlier. So we haven't discussed exactly what this will, will be and we have to finish that also in, this, in the third, fourth quarter of, of this year. So that gives a somewhat limited time frame. Um, so there will be targeted updates and just seeing where we, we've um, misrepresented some, some, some evidence. Um, so there's actually a whole set of consultation questions which kind of gives you the type of information we would want to, want to have to, to improve the report and to uh, publish the final report. 
sounds like you have a lot of work to do in the in the, in coming the months or perhaps a year or so. Uh, it's it's really very must be very hard to assess uh, the impact of such reforms to evaluate those. And uh, big congratulations to the FSB team and your your uh, working group. Uh, I have one, uh, a different question as a closing. Uh, I know you are uh, you are very busy, so we won't take your time. I apologize for the rest of the participants. We won't be able to answer all the questions, but I appreciate uh, your their enthusiasm and joining us today. And uh, this is totally different than our theme. <laughs> Uh, so uh, we don't really see many uh, female leaders uh, accomplish so much and like yourself in the, in the, even in this century. So I was wondering uh, what piece of advice would you give to um, young women who are at the early stages of their careers? Interesting question, very different from the to big to fail question. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I, to some extent, I'm, I, I think the advice I give to also in my previous life working as an academic and having having students, PhD students, I think the advice I gave was not that different for, for male and female students. So one of the first pieces of advice I always give is whatever you choose or whatever you do, do things that you enjoy. So I think uh, trying to pursue a career for the sake of pursuing a career, I think that's never a very good choice. So do things that you actually enjoy and, and that you, where you feel like this is something I could do for the next 10 years and maybe, maybe even, even longer. Um, the second point is um, one shouldn't shy away from challenging tasks. So, and maybe that's, uh, um, I don't know if there's a gender balance or differences across uh, gender types there, but um, I think very, very often you learn, that's what I have learned that things that seemed like a very difficult or, or too complicated task actually after doing it several times it, it was actually easier there was a learning effect um, so I think that's important you know try to to put the bar maybe not too high that you can't cross it but you know be ambitious so I think that's that's very important and the third thing is um, work with others so I, I think in particular in academia um, where, where I'm coming from there's there was for, for a very, very long time um, cooperation interaction wasn't really much appreciated. I think this has also changed over time and, and working with others, I think has two beneficial effects. I think usually it's more fun and, and, and that's important. Uh, so you should enjoy what you're doing. And it also helps you building networks and in, 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 in interacting with others, learning to also um, how to make compromise. And I think that's very important if you make it, want to make it wherever in academia or, or in, a, in, a, in a more policy oriented organization um, like like uh, ours. Um, so maybe these three pieces, and uh, I think they hold across uh, gender, but uh, maybe they're particularly important for, for, um, for um, women in policymaking or academia. Thank you, Claudia. That was great, great advice. Uh, very good. Uh, also, just to attach to our theme today, too big to fail, perhaps you cannot never, uh, you know, be scared of failing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Keep moving and take your lesson. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to having you today. Uh, we appreciate your time spending with us today. And thank you. We big thank you to our participants uh, for their support. Uh, hope to see you in, in again in another Toronto Center event. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's keep in touch. And thanks again.
Bye, was, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.